0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Better Movement podcast. This is Todd Hargrove. This podcast is listener supported. So if you want to show your support, you can become a subscriber at toddhargrove.substack.com. My guest this week is Gilletta Belton. Gilletta writes and speaks about her experience with chronic pain. I've heard her speak several times at pain science conferences in San Diego and Oslo, and each time she had one of the most informative and engaging presentations. Giletta is co-chair of IASP's Global Alliance of Partners for Pain Advocacy, which focuses on integrating the patient perspective into the study, research, and treatment of pain. She's also the first patient and public partnerships editor at the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. In this podcast, Gilletta tells her story about how she went from uh, being an athletic firefighter to someone who was uh, almost physically disabled within just a year after what uh, initially seemed just like a minor injury to her hip. Uh, She also explains how she eventually recovered and how her sense of identity was profoundly impacted during the whole journey. We talked about in this podcast the trajectory of her injury, its transition to chronicity, what she did to treat it, the pain of losing her job and her sense of self, her experience in the medical and workers' comp system, and how some deep realizations about the meaning of her physical life helped with her healing process. We also talked about the value of stories and personal narrative to patients and how clinicians can help patients create those stories. If you haven't heard Joletta talk before, I highly recommend it. And even if you have, listen again. I have several times and I always learn something new. Joletta Belton, thanks very much for coming on my podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Todd. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, me too. So we've been able to talk about the things that you uh, talk about for, for a while. We've met at the San Diego Pain Conference at least a couple times, and I've seen you talk at uh, Pain Cloud in Oslo a few times. And so I'm, I'm psyched to do this all on the podcast now, even though we've kind of covered some of this ground in person.
1: Yeah, me too. And I'm sorry you have to keep hearing my story.
0: No, I was just about to say, I love hearing your story. So for those that, that you don't know, Giletta, uh has appeared at pain conferences a few times to tell everyone there that studying, who are studying pain and treating people in pain, what her experience was like uh, getting into pain, recovering from pain, healing from pain, going through the medical system, uh, what the whole experience is like from your perspective, which is just incredibly valuable for a clinician to hear it's valuable for a researcher to hear uh some of the lessons that i've learned listening to you are kinds of things that in a way i already knew or i thought i knew but maybe just on a surface level and kind of like seeing those those ideas like embodied in a real story kind of communicated it to me and i know to other people at at, at a much deeper level so um I'd kind of I'd, I'd like to hear your story. why don't you tell us uh just kind of start talking with us about how you were doing before you had this experience with chronic pain and and uh how you first started suffering from chronic pain and, and what it was like going through that
1: yeah thanks and i I love that intro to all of this because I think it shows the power of storytelling and why this matters, why listening to people who have experienced pain matters, because you do see it through a different lens, from a different perspective. And all of the things that you do know that you learned through your training or your education or just your own life experiences um, are kind of brought to life in a different way. And so um, I really appreciate that introduction. So my pain story started back in 2010. Now, I can't believe that it's almost a dozen years ago. It was January of 2010. Um, And and I was working as a firefighter paramedic in Southern California for, you know, a a pretty good sized fire department. I was one of about 22, 23 females on my department of a thousand firefighters. Um, I was really, really focused on strength and fitness and working out and um, sort of being one of the guys, because I had to for my job. That was my, my profession. It was very physically demanding, very mentally demanding, but I also loved it. I had been an athlete my whole life, a competitive athlete when I was younger, um, up through college where I played on travel teams and women's leagues. Um, so I was a very competitive person, which is part of what made me successful in, in becoming a firefighter in the first place. Um, I worked at a really busy station where we ran a lot of calls, and I also um, was a wildland fire EMT, so would get shot out of county, what we call it, on uh, wildland fires for, you know, days or weeks at a time. So this was my life. I was a firefighter. If you had asked me to describe myself back then, that's how what I would have answered, because to me, that encapsulated everything that I was. You know, I was strong, I was fit, um, I was a part of a team, I was really active. I solved people's problems. You know, people called us on their worst days and and we were a part of that solution and helping people get through their worst days. Um, So that's who I was when this stupid thing happened to my hip in January of 2010. That was completely unexpected and didn't make any sense at all. We were just on a routine call. It had been a medical aid. It was in the middle of the night, but that was routine for my station. Um, And I had left my clipboard in the ER, in the emergency room, and had to run back in and get it. So I told my, I'm like, hey, cap, I got to go run in and get my clipboard. So I was in a hurry to get out of the engine and just missed the step. So, so dropped from the cab to the ground. So just landed on my my right foot was still standing. I still ran into the ER to grab my clipboard, but I had felt this twinge in my hip. and It was just a twinge. Like I said, I still ran into the ER. So it wasn't like I thought, oh, some catastrophic injury has just happened in my hip. It was just a twinge, a know-nothing twinge. Um, but I did tell my captain about it just because we were, we were taught in our academy always... Always tell your, you know, your captain about anything that ever happens injury-wise for workers' compensation purposes. But I didn't do anything about it for a couple weeks. Um, I think it was about two weeks later that I finally went and saw our occupational doctor because that twinge just became this really nagging kind of sensation, and it wasn't getting any better. Um, I also didn't do anything to make it better. I was still going to work. I was still working out. I was still running. I was still doing all my normal day-to-day activities. So. Finally went to our occupational doctor who first just gave me muscle relaxants and sent me to physical therapy. And at physical therapy, and and this only doesn't make sense in retrospect in me looking back, the first um, clinic that I went to, I did what I called triathlons. I would be on the bike for 15 minutes, then run on the treadmill for 15 minutes, and then do the stair climber machine for 15 minutes. And I don't know what the rationale for this was, other than this general sense of I needed to, I had a soft tissue thing that was going on and it needed to be strengthened, or I needed to be stabilized in some way, like some of those types of narratives. Um, So that's what I did. and And I was still going to work. So not surprisingly, still working out, still running. Not surprisingly, didn't get better. Um, Went back to the occupational doctor, I think six or eight weeks later, went to a different physical therapist. And again, the focus was really on strength and and exercise and doing these things, which weren't a deficit for me. When all of this happened, um, I was in the best shape of my life. I could deadlift twice my body weight. I was bench pressing my body weight. And I would tell you about it. I was very proud of these things back then. I could do 12 strict pull-ups. Not that I'm not still proud of those things now, as you can tell. (laughs) But I was a really fit and active person back then. So that it's only in retrospect now, but, but looking back at that, I realized that that's not the things that I needed. I probably needed some rest. But I worked instead for five months, five and a half months after experiencing this twinge um, and went to physical therapy and, and did all of these things.
0: How much is it bothering you right now, the, the, the problem that's ongoing? The, it's at this moment I don't
1: even notice. It. Oh, I,
0: I mean, uh, like at this time that you're doing the physical therapy. Oh, I'm very literal, Todd. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so it it became really problematic over time. So you know, months in that the twinge just. It became more nagging and more constant, and I started worrying about it more because it wasn't resolving in any way. So I had this expectation that it would just go away, that it's just a soft tissue injury, that all this PT that I'm doing is going to fix it. And when that didn't happen, then it becomes more more and more concerning for me at that time. And then it also started to affect my function or my function was affected at that time too. And when it really hit home to me that maybe there's something more going on here um, was when we were doing some training. I worked at a big house um, and we had, we always had rookies. So we were always doing what we call manipulative training, pulling hose, throwing ladders, that kind of stuff out in the community. And we were at this this one residential area that had a lot of stairs and steps going up to various apartments. And um, we were, we were just pulling hose up the steps and I was really struggling with my right leg, just in turnouts, you know, moving naturally and easily like I normally did during the course of my career as a firefighter and doing this training all the time. And um, I, I said to my, my captain at the time, like there's, like, this is a problem because it hit me at that time that I was becoming a hazard to my crew because I wasn't able to do my job like I was supposed to. I was becoming a hazard to the community, becoming a hazard to myself, um, and that maybe this was more serious than, than I had thought. So that was when I really started to worry because now it's, it's not just my hip that is threatened or my tissues that are threatened. It's my livelihood, my career, Your identity. You know, my my identity, my sense of who I am. Like I said I was a firefighter. I was an athlete. Yeah. I mean, I prided myself in outlifting the guys at work. Like, th- this was so built into who I was at that time. I was a pure fitness trainer. So I was, you know, someone who would train other firefighters and strength and conditioning or in academies doing our, our physical training in the mornings. So this was so much tied into who I was that when, I went back to the occupational doctor after this training session where I realized my function was, was being limited and I was really struggling, especially in turnouts to climb stairs or get on and off the engine. Um, and he took me off work. So I went from, from being at work, you know, 24, 48, 72-hour shifts or even being out of county for weeks at a time to now all of a sudden being home all the time and not being with my crew. Who I was used to spending more time with than I than I spent time with my husband. I was used to being at the station more than I was at home. Um, so it was like all of a sudden, this little twinge had led me on this like totally unexpected path of my life being completely upended and myself being completely upended and not having any explanation for why any of it was happening. I had no idea and it well, didn't was, make any sense. But what
0: was your explanation at the time? I mean, even though you didn't know, you know, what were you, what story was, were you telling what the, to explain what was happening. There must've been something. So,
1: and there must've been, and I don't, I don't really know. Like I, all I had been told was that it was soft tissue. I didn't really have any kind of diagnosis for a long time. And then, I mean, I was in the workers' compensation system when I went off work. Um, in being a firefighter in Southern California, the way that the system worked for us was that you, get, you are investigated before you are treated to make sure that you're not malingering, you're not lying about this just to get time off, which doesn't make sense, any sense whatsoever because they actually gave me more time off in this, during this investigative process than if I had just gone to see someone right away. Um, but I was so lost during that time because I was completely cut off from my department and also completely cut off from healthcare professionals. So I wasn't getting any information from anyone about what could be going on. And I think that that my idea of what was going on was just, like, a general sense of dread. <laughs> like, like, I didn't have, like, a specific notion of what might be happening. It was just this overall sense of dread and worry um, about what was happening. And that it didn't make any sense. Like, I... I said I had been an athlete my whole life. I had had a lot of injuries during that time. I'd even had multiple surgeries under anesthesia because I'd had some pretty traumatic injuries, including broken legs. I've broken my nose four times and had to have reconstructive surgery twice, Um, all sports-related, but one was – was dancing related, but, um, that's a different story, <laughs> but so i had had these major injuries before. I mean, I had a compound fracture, open fracture of my leg and I never had a pain issue.
0: Yeah. So you're, um, you're a cut. You're expecting this is going to get better. You've recovered yeah. from injuries before. And I'm like, so- literally
1: I've had a bone sticking out of my leg before and recovered fine from that. Why is this stupid twinge completely upending my life? And it wasn't until, um, I think in October of that year, I got injections by an orthopedic specialist, um, and my pain actually got worse after that. And then I was sent to a surgeon in in December of that year. So now, eleven months into this experience, I got, that was when I got my first diagnosis, which was FAI, femoral acetabular impingement, um, and that to me was great. Now I know what it is, yeah. you know. And and of course, I I saw a surgeon, so his recommendation was surgery, and. <laughs> I wanted surgery because that was going to fix it. My pain was caused by this anatomical thing that happened. My hip, my, you know, femur jammed up into my acetabulum when I stepped off the fire engine. Now everything makes sense. I have an explanation for everything, and now there's this surgical solution for yeah. it. Um, so great. I'm I'm feeling really good about all this, but of course, like throughout the process of of being in the work comp system. It took three months for that to go through review and to get approved. So I didn't actually have surgery until March of the following year, which is now 13 months about since this twinge first started. At that time, when I went in, because they weigh you you know, for the anesthesia before you're going in for your surgery, I weighed 110 pounds going into this surgery, which was about 30 pounds less than I had weighed when I went off work in July. So in less than a year, I had lost almost 30 pounds. And I didn't even look like myself anymore at this time. And, And there's so much that I attribute to that. Like I was just really stressed. I was really, really worried at the time about losing my fitness and my strength because I really wanted to go back to work. Um, My only treatments I had been given were physical therapy, so I was still doing, like, workouts and exercises and all of that stuff to maintain my strength and everything like that. But I think my metabolism must have just been on freaking overdrive because I was still eating a normal amount, but I was losing weight like crazy, and I wasn't working out as intensely as I was before. So I lost a ton of muscle um, because my body fat percentage was dangerously low, too, like around 7%. Oh, wow. um, Yeah. So when I looked in the mirror, by the time I had surgery, I didn't even look like myself. I was unrecognizable to myself. And I had been in pain at this point now. For 13 months, even though those early months, I wouldn't, like it was more twingy, those early months. But, you know, a good at least nine, 10 months where it was pain. Um, And so, to me, it's interesting in looking back that that didn't raise any flags for anyone that was in my healthcare process, like how, and there's, it's because of the lack of continuity of care too. I was always seeing different people. So people didn't, by the time I got to my surgeon, he had no idea what I looked like when I first got hurt back in January or first went off work in July. Um, but it didn't raise any, any red flags for people. Like there's something wrong here. Like people shouldn't look this drastically different.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You've, you've kind of like become a like a, a cog in a big system, like a wheel in a big system. And, and uh, there's not a person there looking after you. There's just a system l- doing it. And it's kind of blind to uh, your situation. And it's not really solving your problems. It's kind of like looking at you as a problem to solve and kind of bouncing you around. It sounds to me like that's what, what people often experience getting into you know, the system.
1: Yeah, it's like you're just punted to the next person. I can't figure this out and fix this problem that's presented to me, so I'm just going to send you down the line to the next person. Then you get further and further removed from people who actually, like, know you or have seen you early on in your care. Um, My surgeon, sorry, out of all of this, was actually, he was wonderful and probably the most, like, biopsychosocial person that I saw during this entire time, Um, and, and I'll get more into that post-surgery, because this, which might not be a surprise to anyone listening, it didn't work. It didn't fix me. (laughs) My pain wasn't resolved afterwards. My anatomy looked absolutely beautiful afterwards because he's a a world-renowned surgeon in this area in in terms of um, hip surgeries. And so my anatomy was all fixed. Great. And I went back to physical therapy, and I hit physical therapy hard because I I really wanted to get back to work. Uh, But I still had this pain. I still had pain. It was different. My pain was qualitatively different after surgery than it was before. Before surgery, I'd had this deep visceral pain. I called it gremlins squeezing my ovaries, um, which sometimes they say that bone pain can have this referred visceral-type sensation. Um, so I do think that my surgery helped to resolve some issues, but I still had, you know, localized pain in my, my hip, particularly in my groin and my SI joint. And in my paperwork, it said I could not go back to work until I was pain-free, which reinforced those notions for me that pain is a problem. Pain is really bad. Pain means that there is something wrong, that there's damage in there. And so I, took that on as I messed this all up. I messed up my surgery. My surgery was perfect and good. I did something afterwards to screw it up. I had to have, because why else didn't it work? Why else wasn't I fixed? I had to have done something wrong. Um, And I was given, because I'd been off work for um, almost a year, it was like eight months or nine months by the time I had surgery, I was only given three months to get back to work. Um, And and I had to be pain-free within three months. And that didn't happen. So I was essentially forced to medically retire from from the career that had defined Uh me, from the job that had defined me, that I wanted nothing more than to get back to because I completely, utterly, totally did not feel like myself and had no idea who I was. Like I was a complete stranger to myself. You know, before all this, I, I had prided myself in being strong, and the the worst insult you could have said to me was that I was weak or small. And now all of a sudden, I was this weak and small person. Like I became those things over the the course of this, you know, year and a half or year and five months. Um, by the time that decision was made for me to medically retire from work, and when when I look back at it now, like the most distressing aspects of that pain experience weren't the sensations that I felt in my hip. It wasn't what I felt in my SI joint. It wasn't even the the groin pain or the tugging or any of those things. And I had used to describe the the pain in my hip as being like a blunt knife, being like dug in and then dragged across, which is not pleasant. But that wasn't the most distressing aspect of, of all of this. It was all of those life and self and social changes social disruptions that were the most distressing you know no longer being able to work in this career that defined me i i because of the way that my pain was i couldn't sit like sitting was my most painful activity it was so difficult to sit so that meant you know no driving it meant no meeting a friend for coffee or going out to dinner it didn't i couldn't even watch movies on the couch with my husband, because I couldn't sit on the couch. My entire existence was standing or lying flat on the the ground. That was, Uh. and and I didn't do anything. So I didn't go anywhere. My world and my life became really, really small. That's not true. I say that, but I I worked in a civilian position. After all of this, I still went back to work, but in a civilian position for my department. Um, But it's like this big black, missed when I look at it. I don't really remember much of what I did. Um, I became our wellness and fitness coordinator coordinator. Like I said, I was a paired fitness trainer before. So I had been in that program for a long time. I transitioned into our wellness and fitness coordinator role, managed like a multi-million-dollar budget. I don't know how I did any of this because I don't remember it. All I remember is like pain and just trying to get through each day and just trying to, to function. Um, And how are you you
0: understanding this? I mean, you, you mentioned like part of your understanding was I messed up. It was my fault. I mean, that was, that was one explanation for it, you know, but what were the other kind of explanations or stories that, that you were telling to explain, you know, how did this happen to me? Is there like, you know, like a scientific explanation or a biomechanical explanation or a medical one?
1: So my, and and again, like, I, I feel like, um, I wish I had started journaling much earlier in this process. So I had greater insight into what I was thinking at that time. Cause when I look back now, it really is this generalized sense of dread and worry and Drew letter who wrote an amazing paper called the experiential paradoxes of pain, which is just absolutely excellent. And he's an MD, PhD philosopher, dude. Um, so like it's looking at Chronic pain, and who experienced chronic pain himself. So he's looking at it through all these multiple lenses. But he talks about the the experiential paradoxes of pain. But in in that, he also talks about how the specific pain, you know, becomes this totalizing experience and this malignant mist through which you experience everything else. And it's so hard for me to see through that mist to know what I was thinking back then. But I did. I know that I my beliefs about it were very damage-based. When I say I did something wrong, it meant I re-injured the structure somehow. Like I I had to have somehow created more damage in my hip joint, in that hip socket somehow because of how I was moving or how I was sitting or how I was just being in the world. Um, I had to have done more structural you know, devastation <laughs> was kind of probably my thinking at the time because it, my life was so devastated. That it has to be something really, really wrong in there for all of this bad stuff to have happened um, and to not not get better. And then there's no, there. I wasn't offered any explanations other than after going through surgery and then physical therapy again afterwards, it becomes kind of that in the absence yeah. of a disordered spine, it must be a disordered mind. You, you are the the problem here because yeah. we can't find anything.
0: Everything. So, you, so, looks so fine. you are kind of like being starting to get this idea. Maybe maybe there's something wrong with my mind. Or but are you getting the idea that I'm imagining it, or that it's not real, or I'm doing it to myself, or anything like that? that yeah, we do, and Yeah.
1: Yeah, like in just an incredible sense of shame. You know, shame that I didn't get better, shame that I let so many people down, my fellow firefighters, you know, my friends, my family, my husband, because I was no longer the same person that he had fallen in love with. And, you know, we'd been together at 10 years when this happened. So we had 10 years of this completely different life. And now everything in our relationship is upended. Everything in our our life is affecting him, too, not just me. Um So ashamed that I didn't get better when I should have. And then that leads to that blame too, because I should have gotten better. Everyone's told me that I should have been better now. It doesn't make any sense for me not to be better. So then taking on that blame that it's my fault that I didn't, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Not just my hip, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said earlier, my surgeon was actually the one who, who made me feel the most believed during this whole process and never once made me feel like I was at fault for my pain or that I had screwed up his surgery. He, he also didn't have explanations for my pain other than to say, your pain is real, but there's nothing that I can do about it. Uh-huh. Um, and he was the one that encouraged me actually to get out of the workers' compensation system and to try and seek answers on my own. He's like, I think that you, you are smart enough that you will be able to figure this out but you will not be able to do it within this system because the system is going to keep telling you that there's nothing wrong
0: right? and
1: nothing that can be treated. Um, and so eventually that was what I did. Um, I worked in this position, the civilian position for, for two years. So that was three years total from the injury to the day that I left the fire department altogether. Um, and I mean, and during that time, just horrible interactions, like the system itself is very adversarial where you are put in that position of constantly having to prove that you're in pain and then having to prove that you're in pain, having to just prove your worth and value as a human being, you know, like, and that's such a difficult place to, to be in when you're already so low and in so much pain and it, it just like, it's this massive burden And I remember I was commuting to work. I was taking the train so I could stand. I don't know if you've ever been in Southern California, but our public transportation is like very um, inadequate. So it it was like a big process just to get to and from work. So I was commuting about three hours a day and working you know, full time, working 40 hours a week, and then trying to self-manage my pain atop all of that. And it all just became too much, and I couldn't do it anymore. And there, there was a time where I wasn't able to sleep, where I was just in so much pain, I couldn't sleep. It was like two weeks that I was getting really poor sleep. And I felt like I was losing my grip on reality. I felt like, like, I just felt so untethered from, from everything. And I called my claims adjuster. And I just wanted to go back to physical therapy, because I did like physical therapy, even though it didn't work for my pain. I did like it. I mean, it suited all of my biases of working out, doing exercise, all of that kind of stuff. Plus I was doing it in a supervised and safe environment. Um, And she said, in order to get physical therapy and you need to see your surgeon again, and this is almost two years out from my surgery. And I'm like, what, what is he, of course he's going to say yes. So let's just do it. Like, why would he deny it? But I, and I'm like, can that be a phone call? No, you have to go in and see him in person. So calling his office, it's nine weeks out to get an appointment because he's a surgeon, does surgeries. So I'm like, for this flare-up that I'm in right now, because I haven't slept for two weeks, and all I want is physical therapy, I have to wait nine weeks to go get a recommendation for it that you then have to approve. Like, the system is so messed up. And then I remember saying, like, this just, this isn't feasible. There's got to be a different way. And she, her response was, if you're really in that much pain, go to the ER. And I was like, what? How are you telling someone with who's had pain for three years now at this point to go to the emergency room if I'm really in that much pain? It just it just kind of highlighted how awful and stressful and distressing all of those things it is for people who are in those systems and how much that has to contribute to the experience of pain itself. Like all of that, you know, allostatic load, that toxic load that is added to this pain experience just kind of amplifies everything. But so, after that experience and my, my surgeon's kind of recommendation, I medically retired from the fire department altogether or, or left the fire department altogether um, three years to the day of the twinge. And I went back to graduate school, which is not a viable treatment path for most people <laughs> living with pain. But I went back to graduate school to study human movement, and I studied pain science too because I really wanted to understand pain science or I really wanted to understand pain better, um, and I really had biomechanical, biomedical notions of what pain was, so that was why I chose human movements. So I thought if I just fixed my movement, fixed my posture, did all of those things even better, then I would be out of pain, so wanted to to figure that out, and it was the best and most expensive decision I could have made for, for my pain, because I did, through that experience, come to a different understanding of pain through what I learned of pain biology and, and the science of pain. But there was also a lot of cognitive dissonance in my program, because some of the human movement courses I was taking were in direct opposition to some of the things I was learning through what I was studying of the biology of pain. Um, but it's through that process, and it, it was actually when I was in graduate school, and this is how how we met very tangentially. My brain works in strange ways. Um, But we had to interview someone in our field. So I had no idea what my field was going to be because I had retired from the fire department. I had no idea what my future held in store. Um, So I figured my field was pain. And I reached out to Lorimer Mosley to see if he would do an interview, and he agreed to it. So had a wonderful conversation with him for about 45 minutes, um, grilled him about all things pain science. And I'm going to tell two little stories in here because I think they're, they're both um, both relevant. At the end of that conversation, I asked him, what is the one thing you would want people with chronic pain to know or to do? And he's like, I'll give you a sciencey answer first because that's what I'm supposed to do. So he did. But then he said, my real answer is to love and be loved. And that was such a turning point for me because I realized how much my life had been on hold, how unlovable and unloving I felt at that time, how unworthy and devalued I had felt through this whole process, um, that maybe there was a different way forward. That if I had focused on the living part, the meaning part, the value part of my life, the loving part of my life, even if pain was still present, that might be a viable way forward. Um, But he also told me during that conversation that he was going to be the keynote speaker at the first San Diego Pain Summit, which was the following year. This was 2014 that I talked to him. In 2015, he was the keynote. So I registered as soon as I got off the Skype with him for that, that conference, and I remember having to finagle with Rajam to get in because I was a patient, and I didn't fall into any of the categories you could check, <laughs> but thankfully she let me in, um, and it was through that process then of engaging with people like you and the people that I met at the San Diego Pain Summit and through that conversation with Lorimer and his mm-hmm. generosity and insights through that conversation that I I felt like I had this new way forward that I had never been exposed to during the previous four or five years of my care when I was in active treatment, this new way of thinking about pain and what might help with it. And that it didn't just have to do with the tissues and, and structures in my hip, that, that maybe there was more to it, which is overwhelming and daunting, but also offers more ways in potentially to changing that experience.
0: Um, what, uh, sorry to interrupt, what uh you know, you you mentioned this idea that I need to move forward with my life and start loving again and, and things like that. What does that look like uh concretely, like in terms of like just for you and like a like a physical basis? How did your your life change and what you were like physically doing because of this new idea that you had?
1: So it started so small, so, so small, and it's why I think all small victories should be, be celebrated for, for people with pain. But I, it led me to reflect on like all of the things, like learning kind of more of the psychosociality of pain led me to reflect on all the things that might be contributing to my experience, all of the contextual things, the the social things, the things in my environment, all of the things that maybe I was no longer doing, no longer engaging with, that made me feel like me. Because I realized how much not being a firefighter anymore, not being that person who lifted heavy in the gym and ran and did all of these things, how much that had affected my sense of who I was and my sense of self. And it it took me a long time to realize that i hadn't i wasn't who i was because i was a firefighter that i had become a firefighter because of who i was so it was about getting into touch again with those values that drove me to becoming a firefighter in the per- first place and the the reasons that i enjoyed being a firefighter and figuring out what those things were and part of it you know it was being a part of a team it was being outside being active being you know being out in the world, just being out in the world. And I hadn't been doing that for so long. I'd been living this very isolated, pained life within the confines of my home. I wasn't even spending much time out in my backyard, let alone out in the world. So like some of the the concrete things that I did, um, were just one was just to go outside again. And I started taking... Pictures just through my phone. Pictures of nature started with like snails in my backyard, or flowers, or plants. Like micro photography with my Samsung Galaxy phone, um, and just being outside was was helpful. Just being in the sun again was helpful. It was starting to do things like I was a runner before all of this, and I knew I couldn't just get back into running, but I was getting back onto trails again. Like out of my neighborhood, out of my backyard, and onto a trail, Um, and that was really helpful. Like just being out in nature again for me, because I've been camping since I was in diapers. So that kind of stuff really um, is something that I value. Did you
0: do that stuff? Were you afraid of flaring up if you kind of became more physical and got outside? Or
1: I wasn't. I was never afraid of the pain itself. I was always afraid of what the pain meant. So. For me, f- flaring up was okay and worth it, it even, even if it happened. Because I no longer, after a time, it took a while for these ideas to take hold and for me to be able to apply them to myself. This wasn't an overnight thing where I, I learned pain science and I'm like, oh, I don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. It, it took time and everything was a gradual process. But I was no longer worried of doing damage to myself or that I was messing up my hip joint. And so that different disposition was huge in being able to engage with those things. Cause I wasn't so worried then if, if my pain went up a little bit, I wasn't worried that I had devastated or destroyed my hip in some way. Um, I remember the first time I went snowboarding again was five years, five years. Yeah. Five years after I had gotten hurt. And I had asked my surgeon before I went, um, if, if this was something he thought, was okay. I'd asked him about running too. And he's like, I don't see why low mileage running would be a problem. I don't see why you can't snowboard. So I remember the first time I went snowboarding again. So this was uh, January of 2015. So five years after the twinge, four years, almost four years after my surgery, a couple years into me learning about pain science and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I remember being on the lift and going up the mountain, in where we now live in Colorado, in Winter Park, <laughs> obviously it was a really transformational and good experience because we just moved there afterwards. Um, but going up the lift and seeing the Continental Divide, and just thinking to myself, "Oh my God! Like the world is so beautiful and amazing and incredible, despite my absence from it for so long. You know, it's still there, like to be explored and to be." um, experienced in all of these ways. And I remember the first run down, which my husband took me down a freaking terrible run. It was like a bumps run, a mogul run, but, but I survived it and got to the the end of it. And I remember thinking to myself, so when you, when you talk about like, what I, what did I think was going to happen? Or what did I think was happening in my hip? This might offer a clue. I remember thinking to myself, my femur didn't explode through my thigh. Like, um, and I, then I realized that maybe I had been thinking that all along because I didn't, like, it wasn't until I had that thought that, that I even recognized that I was worried about that. Um, And I think some of that is tied to this notion of how unstable my hip was or how unstable I'd been told I was over time. So having these visions of like my femur just knocking around in there and someday it's just going to pop out and pop through my thigh. But so getting to the end of that run and just being like, oh my God, I did it. Nothing catastrophic happened. I'm not, you know, I'm not in in any less pain for having done it. But I'm also not in significantly more pain either. Like, I can do this. And that was huge. And and for me, like I said, just being outside was incredibly valuable. And then some of it was just, like, awkward conversations, too. Texting people going, I know I've disappeared the last few years. Um, I'm back. Like, still have pain. Might still, like decline invitations but would love to be offered invitations to go out if you want to include me um sorry for having disappeared on you hope you've been doing well like really awkward texts that i sent out to people just because i wanted to reconnect with people again um
0: that took some bravery going down the hill took some bravery sending out the text took some bravery right both of those things could have gone wrong
1: Oh yeah. Oh, well, some of them did. Some of the texts did not go well, but I also had prepared myself for that because it's weird. Like that's, it's weird to just hear from someone out of the blue after a
0: while. But they're both kind of, they're both kind of risky things. They're creative things. They're things that have a big reward to them. They're things that were meaningful to you. Um, and I'd say, you know, when you tell your story, that's what kind of strikes me. It was, it was that was that just kind of moving in the direction of things that are meaningful, even though there's frightening barriers in the way, has something to do with the recovery, right?
1: Yeah. And I think that 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 ability to do brave things, so much of it came from my pain meaning something different and having a different understanding of it because that freed up capacity, to take on that additional load of being brave or, or taking risks where there was no room for that before because pain took up everything. The worry about that pain took up everything and what that pain meant to, you know, me, my life, my future, my husband, my relationships, all of that took up so much space and so much of my capacity. There wasn't room for that bravery or that taking chances or taking risks, or we've talked about this before. Like, that sense of curiosity and exploration again, or play, just getting back out into the world and like, hey, like I can do things. Let's see what that is. And and for me, it had to be really, really unstructured. I mean, I know snowboarding is sort of structured because it's a specific activity, but it's really just flying down a mountain and avoiding obstacles and reacting to the things that come along the path or the terrain differences and that kind of stuff. It's, It's much more just being in it Without, well, at least for me, I can just be in it without overthinking it too much. Depending on the terrain, sometimes I overthink it. Um, <laughs> super steep stuff. I, I overthink that for sure. Uh, but so, I mean, snowboarding was, was so beneficial for me for that reason. I wasn't thinking about anything other than just being out there snowboarding and, and not planning my movements. Just yeah. moving.
0: Well, you were in a narrow groove, right? I mean, you you were in a narrow groove. You talked about it like a dark tunnel where you kind of like put yourself there because you thought it was the safest place to be and the system put you yeah. there. They put you away from work and they put you away from, uh, you know, social things and you put yourself physically into a little box that would be the safest box to be in. And uh, there was some benefit to introducing some chaos to like get you out of that groove, <laughs> even, even if it was, you know, creates the the potential for danger
1: yeah but it's like danger of my own making rather than imposed on me and i think that's different too (laughs) you know but and and i mean just that that visual to me of being in that narrow place or that bark box which i envision being very like dark and you can't see anything and then that opening up to like a wide open snow covered ski run like it's it's such a a powerful visual for me to, to think of it in, in those terms.
0: Yeah, I can, I can, when you tell this, you know, the story, I keep thinking about the story and the importance of, you know, our own narrative for ourselves, you know, you've got a, a, like a vision of yourself, a self-image and, and that, uh, that, that kind of determines what you perceive and what you do, the way you see yourself and the story you told about yourself and your story is like uh, changed a lot over time and it affects the way, what you do. Yeah, I think I read something that you wrote. I think it was quoting something else someone said, which is that uh, we know that um, facts don't care about feelings, but <laughs> feelings don't care about facts either. So you can, you know, you can learn some new fancy new pain science, and those are facts that your conscious mind way up here appreciates. But there's feelings down inside of you and other like little scared people inside of you that don't <laughs> give a shit about those facts <laughs> right. and have their own story to tell. That story might be. I'm a bad person and I should be sitting in a black box somewhere and it's that, you know, story that needs to be changed. And it's not just about the facts to change that story. Right.
1: Yeah. Very, very true. And, and I, I hope people will take that to heart because I, all of the, the words and language that we use in healthcare, in strength and conditioning, in the fitness world, they can be really negative. And when they're piled on to people, it becomes a part of your belief system about yourself. So I know in a lot of the presentations that I give, I have one slide that a lot of people have, have told me how to had an impact on them. And it's all the words that I heard during the course of my care about being weak and unstable and dysfunctional and out of alignment and disordered and torn and all of these things. And it's like, they all just pile on you. And then you start feeling weak and unstable and dysfunctional and, and incapable of doing things. Plus, you know, in the work comp system, you're told specifically not to do things. I was told no running, no climbing, no awkward positions, which I don't even know what that means. What does no awkward positions mean? Um, No squatting. Like you squat every day is just a part of life. Like, what does that, what does that mean? And then those transform from these are things that you shouldn't do to these are things that you can't do in your your belief system about yourself. So, so much of it in creating that new story, you have to unlearn a lot of those things that you were told about how messed up and broken and dysfunctional you are and like build yourself up again and, and understand that you are courageous and strong and resilient and capable, that you can do these things. But there are so many possibilities, even if you are limited to some extent by pain or to disability, or you know different things that happen. We all have limitations, and that's okay. There's still so much possibility within those constraints.
0: Yeah. So I mean, what you're saying, you know, I'm sure my any clinicians listening can have a lot of ideas from what you're saying, and and, and they've heard before that uh, there's a lot of things that you can communicate to your client when you're trying to help them with well-intended advice that might. Uh, be not so helpful if you're communicating to them that they're weak and fragile and need to be protected too much. So there's a lot that cl- clinicians need to uh, listen to about your story and learn from. But you, um, what about researchers? Recently, you've been working with pain researchers or talking about people who have experienced pain, working with uh, pain researchers to help their research. I'd like to hear more about your recent work there What it's about, why should researchers be listening to people like you? What are you doing?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I'm really excited about this work because it seems like it is really ramped up in the last couple of years and that interest in it and practice in it has really ramped up in the last couple of years. Um, So in 2019, um, kind of how I got into this space is just for my advocacy work in general and presenting at conferences and engaging with researchers and clinicians in that space. And then I became co-chair of IASP, the International Association for the Study of Pains, their global alliance of partners for pain advocacy. So GAPA. And what GAPA is, um, has been developed to do is to integrate lived experience into the study, research, and treatment of pain. So helping IASP achieve its mission of relieving you know, pain worldwide through integrating lived experience into all areas of, of pain research, knowledge translation and dissemination and mobilization, all of those terms, and clinical practice as well. Um, and it's really exciting to be able to see the ways that this is already being done and contributing to it too, because patient involvement in research, and including in the U.S., is becoming a a driving focus for a lot of funders, so the grant makers that are funding research want the researchers to have that public or patient involvement to help you know establish research priorities or making sure that the research is actually addressing um, questions that are relevant and meaningful to patients, and we'll have greater impact in the real world. We all hear a lot about how like guidelines don't work in the real world or how research doesn't apply in the real world. So bringing the real world into those processes can help improve that translation from what we're we're studying from basic science to preclinical work to clinical sciences um, to the actual communities that 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 research is intended to ultimately serve. Um, So that's why I think it's really important because we need to have better alignment between those things. Plus, I mean, all of the researchers and clinicians that, that I have worked with in this space, they really value that patient perspective and patient input because it gets them thinking about their own research in different ways or how their research can be applied in different ways or what different questions they might start asking. Um, another huge element of all that 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 I keep trying to push for, too, is integrating more like peer coaches, peer mentors, peer facilitators in the actual delivery of care, because we learn differently from our peers than we do from health professionals or, you know, clinicians, researchers. Um, and so I think that's a really under tapped and, and underused resource that could really improve pain care by improving you know, just how we talk about pain with people and how we share the research in ways that patients can actually use, that people with pain can actually use in their day to day life. Like you said, like all those facts might be really interesting, but how are they relevant to me in my day to day life? Like that's often the step that we're missing. Um, so patient partners can help to, to provide some of that translative work. You know, this is the, the research, this is what it means practically in your day-to-day life um, and bridging that gap. So that's some of the ways that,
0: that I think it can, helps. Can you Do you have any examples of like things that researchers were doing wrong because they weren't listening to the patients uh, enough and that you, you could like a new avenue that they could go down that things would work better? So
1: I don't. I don't wanna frame it as doing wrong, but maybe doing it in ways that don't have the impact that they would like their research to have. So there's a huge translational gap between um, like intervention development. So many interventions that are developed are really sound theoretically, and can potentially work even in randomized controlled trials, but very few of the the treatment interventions that are developed in that way aren't actually translated into practice in any kind of widespread use or have an impact on practice. So one way is just by improving that, like we're actually creating interventions then that can be implemented more widely. So Beth Darnell is doing a lot of that research. She works with the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute a lot, or is funded by the Patient-Centered Research Outcomes Institute, um, where they're, they, like, there's one research study that she's doing right now, which is called the Value study. Um, there's 13 people with lived experience of pain that are on the research team. So it's about, and this is, that's centered on, like, voluntary opioid tapering, and also, like, the the other things that people who are being tapered off of opioids can do to help manage their pain. Cause that's a big missing gap that patients have said is important. Like it's one thing to say, you can no longer have opioids or you should taper your opioids, but it's a completely other thing to say, you can taper your opioids. And these are all of the things that you can do to manage your pain that you now have access to and that you have said are acceptable to you. Um, but we tend to just do the former you know, opioids are no good, no one should be taking them. We've had this this huge, where people have been harmed from that sort of approach, where they've just been involuntarily told not to, or the, put into positions where they no longer have access to the only treatment oftentimes that they've ever been given for their pain. So it's, it's that implementation into practice. It's been doing, or been done a lot more in like the um, technical interventions for pain, like apps that are being developed and having patient partners be involved in the process of developing what goes into those apps and how they look um, and those sorts of things too. Pain management programs being co-designed with people living with pain, um, either online like telehealth programs or in-person telehealth programs. In New Zealand, Devon is doing amazing work with the Maori communities there, and they're actually developing a Maori-centered pain management clinic um, that is based on, you know, their traditional ways of healing and wisdom and knowledge and, you know, modern medicine ways of managing pain and bringing those perspectives together. Um, sorry, I'm all over the place, but hopefully that answered no, I mean, it yeah, in yeah, some way.
0: A lot of ideas. Well, it <laughs> seems to me that, uh, you know, the people suffering from pain have been able to give some feedback in, in recent years, not only in research, but in, in what they're saying about the different approaches to explain pain. So, you know, therapeutic neuroscience education, explain pain approaches, trying to help people, empower people, give them different ideas to help with the pain related to explaining why the pain happens. And, and that's, that was kind of rolled out a little while ago, and it's probably evolving and changing based on the kinds of feedback it's getting people for, from people that have pain. One of the but some of the negative feedback that I've heard is some people don't like the idea of the word brain ever being mentioned because it has the possibility of applying implying that pain isn't real or that pain is imagined or that you can change pain by changing your thoughts uh, and that kind of stuff and you can see how those implications are there what how did that come across to you did you ever feel like if someone said that pain is in the brain or or that thoughts and emotions affect pain How did that affect you? Was that uh, empowering? Was, did that, um, have, you know, negative implications to you in terms of blaming yourself, which is something that you said you were kind of subject to. And and what about the community in general?
1: Yeah, I think, I think there is great risk. And I've, I've written about this because I hate the pain as an output put of the brain kind of framing of this. Um, and, and, just because of those implications that you've indicated, it kind of says like pain is all in your head and we don't talk about other aspects of life in that way. We don't talk about reality being all in our head or love being all in our head or, or in our brain. Like we don't talk about other human experiences as being in our brain or an output of our brain. It's just not the language that we use. So I think it's, it's, um, really understandable that people take that to mean you're telling me that it's all in my head or that my body is somehow not involved or um, that that's not even where I feel this pain. And there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there because of the way that information is presented. And I don't actually think it accurately reflects the science either, where we now understand to pain to be, like to involve the immune system, to involve the endocrine system, to involve all of these other systems too, beyond just our nervous system. And that you can't separate the nervous system out from the immune system or the endocrine system or, or, or any of our systems. We're an integrated whole when it comes to who we are as, as people. I think that Um, That also contributes to why like psychological interventions or behavioral interventions for pain are really stigmatized, too, because there's this implication that it's all in the head, and if we just fix the way you think or the way that you behave... Then your pain will be fixed. So I think we have a lot of work to do to, to better convey these concepts that we're learning in the science and why certain things work and how what is happening in the body when, including the brain, when, when pain is happening. Um, and that, that patient partners or people lived experience can, can inform that because they just use. Regular language that we use every day and may be able to come up with different ways of framing things that ad, you know adequately and accurately reflect the science but are also acceptable to the communities that they're targeted for. Yeah.
0: Um, uh, n- another thing I've heard from uh, uh, people suffering from chronic pain is they really don't like people uh, asking them to put a number on their pain and from the clinician's point of view, from the researcher's point of view, uh, it makes sense. We're trying to figure out how much this hurts. There's a difference between something hurting a little. There's a difference between something hurting a lot. We want to analyze this using tools of science. We want to know whether there's been progress, but I've heard a lot of negative feedback from people like you and Keith and others. I don't I don't like all that number stuff. Tell us what's going, why not?
1: Yeah. Well, and and there's multiple sides to this because there are patients where pain intensity is really important for them and they've communicated that to researchers as well. But for me, what what is difficult is is knowing I don't know how to quantify my experience into a single number because my pain fluctuates throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year. So am I talking about my pain in this very moment when I'm engaged in a conversation so I'm not thinking about it or when I hang up the the zoom call and I stand up for the first time after sitting in my chair for an hour because my pain's going to go up it's it always does when I'm sitting for a long period of time so is it then or was it when I woke up this morning just when my pain tends to be at its worst or is it after I've moved for a little bit or if I just drove to physical therapy is it after driving there or is it after being there for 15 minutes? Like it's it's different depending on the context and what I'm doing. And it's hard to quantify that. And then I also, if like I'm having this conversation right now, my pain is super low, I'm not paying attention to it, it, it doesn't register at all. I don't want to report something that then diminishes or trivializes my experience altogether because it's still not so much now, but back then still has an impact on your day-to-day life. It still influences the decisions that you make and all of that. So if I tell you that right now in this moment, it's a one, you're going to be like, ah, your pain is nothing. So we don't have to worry about it. And it's totally ignoring that later it might be a seven or an eight, or that yesterday, you know, it was a, a nine or, you know, like, so it's, it's, really hard for me to put a number on my particular type of pain you know more um, musculoskeletal pain like neuropathic pain is a bit different than something like CRPS or fibromyalgia would be like all of those experiences are different too and people think about them and conceptualize their pain experiences differently and some might have a number that they can tie to their their experience but for me it's always been a, a challenge because how do I quantify all of that and in there's discussion too like how much of it is is pain how much of it is the suffering of the the experience of pain itself how much is it is the impacts of pain on all these other aspects of your life and how do you is that a part of that quantification are are we assuming it in that quantification and how do we separate those things out because all of those things influence our experience of pain too so for me it's just really pain is incredibly complex both the the science of it and the lived experience of it so to try to boil all of that down into a single number is just mind-boggling to me personally
0: yeah it's kind of scientifically kind of weak because you're you're you know you're, you're taking thousands of variables and collapsing them into one small variable and it's also a little dehumanizing because you're taking this profound human experience and it turns into a little check mark on someone's piece of paper <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so I, I can see it from both angles there what's something else that you just really like researchers and clinicians to know which they don't seem to know even you know the you know supposedly enlightened ones that have read their pain science that are very well intentioned they're trying their best What's something that they kind of need to know that you people who've suffered pain know, and you're kind of yelling and the message isn't getting through? Or...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think one big one, and it's something, it's a, a drum that I beat all the time. But there, in the qualitative literature, there is this overriding theme of patients feeling like they're invalidated, that they are not believed, that they haven't been heard in their care. Yet, anecdotally, when I talk to clinicians or researchers, everyone thinks that they're doing that. So there's a huge gap between the experience of patients, of people living with pain, and and what researchers and clinicians think might be happening. And I think that's something we need to explore and address. Why do so many patients feel like they're not being heard or that their pain is being invalidated or trivialized or dismissed in some way? And why do so many clinicians think that they do a great job of listening to their patients and validating and acknowledging them? There's a, a gap there that I think we, we need to explore and address more because it's... it's um, I had very kind and caring clinicians throughout my time in work comp. The system itself was was terrible, but the people in it were nice people who I knew wanted to help me. But even through that, I didn't always feel heard. I didn't always feel like my pain was believed or validated or acknowledged. or And I definitely never felt like my challenges that I faced because of this pain experience were acknowledged in any meaningful way. Like just how hard it friggin' is to live with this ongoing pain that doesn't get better, that you can't make sense of, that has completely upended your life. Like I never felt like anyone just took the time to say, man, that sucks, I'm really sorry that you've gone through all this and that your life has changed so much because of this and how much I'm actually getting teared up saying that, how much that could have meant. Cause it was always very, very, you know, clinical objective. There's, there's no emotions here during my care, even though they were nice people. Um, my life was so utterly changed by this experience and not one person ever, ever said, I'm sorry that that happened to you, you know?
0: What if they said that in a way that was just kind of, they, they said those words, but, you know, they, there's six people coming in every day that are the, kind of in the same situation. And at some point it just becomes words and you can kind of sense that.
1: Yeah, and that's no good either. And so it's, I think we need to have more people advocating for systems change too, because our current systems aren't just bad for the patients like me. Who had terrible experiences in them. They're really bad for the clinicians working in those systems too, because if, if you have to stop caring about your patients in order to get through your day, there's a huge problem there, and that's where we're at in many places. Um, so the this is this is something that um, that I've shared in different. I'm a peer reviewer on you know multiple papers, and some of them I'm encouraging to uh, to start more explicitly bringing in those arguments that we need systems change. We need policy change. <clears throat> we can't keep focusing on fixing individual patients and we can't keep focusing on fixing individual cl- clinicians to make them more time efficient and more, you know, all of those things. Like we can't keep fixing clinicians and patients. We need to fix the systems that we're operating within and that we're interacting within if we really want to improve not just pain care, but healthcare care in general.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love the word systems that you're using there because it could be that all the individuals in the system are perfectly uh, nice people and trying their best, but uh, it's, the system as a whole is treating the patient badly. Yeah. And the clinician patient.
1: badly.
0: So, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> treating everyone badly. What, what about this? I I, I wonder, I, maybe getting a little bit off track here, but just kind of like, it seems to me that one of the competencies of a of a uh, clinician should be should be being able to kind of listen that way and talk to people that way in the way that you need to be listened to without kind of destroying themselves in terms of like <laughs> the amount of yeah my my wife is a is a therapist she's a counselor she talks to people all day long about their problems it's it's her job to sit there and listen and really listen and you know and it's and it's a hard job, but like it's kind of like uh she develops a certain type of fitness to, make, <laughs> to do that, you know, and I think there's certain ways of uh, of listening that are probably more ta- they're less taxing than others, but you're still hearing the other people i'm I'm not saying that i'm uh the person that can do this, but i I just kind of makes me think of something that um uh the idea of the difference between compassion and empathy
1: yeah. I was you know thinking
0: the same about? thing. Yep. Yeah. So so for those no, empathy is kind of like you feel what someone else feels, which is very taxing. <laughs> because to, to to you know, once you wave you're there with them, that they, they like that. They're that's good, but it's very hard on you. But compassion is kind of like you're not necessarily feeling what the other person feels. You're just giving them a very, very, very sincere wish that they feel better, which might be good for them, but not necessarily killing you. Right, the the work
1: that Matteo Ricard has done in that area, I don't know if I'm saying it's right, his name right, um, but in that like empathy burnout or fatigue, and and that it doesn't seem to happen with compassion. Um, that it's, it's just a different stance to take. And I do think that they're, I think one of the huge services that we're doing for for health professionals is not teaching better communication skills and ways of having difficult conversations. Because oftentimes these are hard conversations, especially when you're working with people who've been living with pain for a long time. Like that can be a difficult conversation to have, yet we often don't help people to, to feel comfortable in themselves and having those conversations. Yeah. And we need to do a better job of that because that's, I mean, adding that stress, like I have to now be a good communicator, but no one ever taught me how to do this. And I think that we need more of like the narrative medicine and medical humanities approaches integrated throughout um, our educational systems for people who go into to health professions or to helping professions of, of people who are living with pain. One resource that I will share on on this is John Loner's book, Conversations Inviting Change, um, Approaches. It's like in health and social care um, or narrative approaches to health and social care, Conversations Inviting Change. But it's an excellent, excellent resource and it's a very slim volume, very accessible for clinicians to read with really practical ways of initiating these conversations or sustaining these conversations Um, in practice and ways of doing it that that aren't trying to like coerce patients to believe what you believe and do all the things that you want to do you know be compliant and obey (laughs) but to actually get to know what the most concerning issues are for this person and at this time that they're presenting to you and how you can work towards those Um, and it's it's I think that there's a, a a misunderstanding too that If patients are just given free reign to tell their story, that it's going to take forever. It's going to be like this conversation that you and I are having here. You know, take an hour and nobody's got time for that. But usually when patients are given the chance to tell their story or share what matters to them most in a a clinical encounter at the start, they only take about two minutes. No,
0: they don't. They're going to, they'll err on the side of not, of telling less. I mean, I have everyone, I have everyone, tell me your story. And I'll use those words, tell me your story. You know, and sometimes people will kind of think that they need to like be really quick about it. And I say no, 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 start <laughs> where you want to start, go where you want to go, tell me your story. And they don't, it doesn't take a long time. And if, and if it does, I feel like, uh, this is good because you know, they're, they're getting, to, they're getting something out of this to, to, you know, they might not even know what their story is and to, to start telling it, they're actually constructing it for themselves right now and learning something about what they think about this whole thing and giving me maybe a target to aim at if that story is like obviously wrong and hurting them (laughs) then you have one of the easier clinical targets to aim at
1: right well and and like you just said that ability to just tell your story arthur frank talks about how it gives us critical distance from the tale being told which might be the first time that we have some critical distance from the story that we're telling. Because
0: you have to step outside of yourself and look at yourself. It's like a meta meta thing.
1: It's a meta. And then you might be able to start making some of your own connections and be like, oh shit, like (laughs) I never thought of it this way. Or it might open up some new possibilities or new ways of thinking. And he also talks about how we don't just talk about ourselves or tell about ourselves when we tell our stories. We construct ourselves in the telling. And that there's always the potential to retell a different story the next time. And I think that clinicians and health professionals have an integral, crucial role in helping us to tell better stories, helping us to co-create, you know, better narratives about what we're experiencing and what our possibilities are, you know, who we are in this moment in time and who we want to be and that co-construction of Of narrative and stories, I think should probably be more of a focus than it is. And like you said, it's therapeutic in and of itself oftentimes for the people who get that opportunity to tell it. And by getting to tell your story, it opens up the capacity then to take on new information, to be able, because now I know you've heard me. I know you heard me. I know you have a better understanding of me. And so then we'll have a better understanding of pain and my experience. Now, I can take a breath and I have some more cap- capacity freed up to take on what you have to tell me. Where if you don't do that first, that capacity might not ever open up and there might be that resistance to your facts don't matter because you haven't heard my feelings. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. And you have you have the chance. Yeah, you have the chance to kind of uh, reframe their story a little bit, you know, with the you know, I'm hearing this or I'm hearing that. You might be able to reflect something that they've told you that they didn't even know that they were telling you. Like the story might be, I hear that this is very valuable to you and you're very scared of losing that. And they don't even kind of know that that's kind of a huge issue.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what happened with me at the, again at the San Diego Pain Summit um, when I was the patient demo for Peter O'Sullivan. And he started off that session. So at that time, this was seven years after the twinge, over seven years after the twinge. And I had started having pain in my other hip, my, my quote unquote good hip. So that's ostensibly what I was there for, was for the new pain I'd been having for about seven months at that time in my left hip. And when he's, I didn't do any research. I didn't know who Peter O'Sullivan was before all of this started. So I wasn't prepared at all for him to say, Tell me your story. And I was like, Ah. Oh. Like, where do you want me to begin? And he said, wherever you want. And I didn't tell him a thing about my left hip. I went back to the story I told at the beginning of our conversation here about being a firefighter, stepping off a fire engine, and my life being completely upended by this stupid twinge. And then, in that telling, got to see how scared I was that I was going down that same path again. You know, that that I had built up my life again and was doing things that I loved and that were meaningful to me. I had, you know, recreated myself in a sense. I was telling a really good story up until this pain in my left hip and I was worried I was going to lose it all again. And then he was able to challenge that. Like, is that really what's going on here? And we got to explore that throughout the session. And it wasn't. And amazingly, I haven't had pain in my left hip since. Like, I, I feel like it's a miracle. But I understand more of what's happening. Like so much of the pain that I was feeling. And and I do things. to. I probably have FAI in that hip as well. It was probably more genetic than anything else. Or contributed to it just because of the way that my femur head is shaped. And... So I do, I don't squat as deep when I squat now. I don't, you know, there are things that I can do to manage that, that now aren't a big deal where before I had these notions of you have to do, you have to move in this way. This is the right way to move. And if you don't, you are, you're not doing it right. Well, I've, I've gotten past all of that now so I can manage what was going on in that hip much differently than I did in my right hip.
0: Well, that's great well I've, I've kept you for a while here but uh we didn't talk about a time but but it's, it's, it's been a while i'm sure we can keep going um what uh tell us what uh what should we where can we find you online what are you up to right now what do you want to tell people about to look for from you
1: so i am online everywhere as um at my cup of joe, M Y C U P P A J O, but I'm mostly on Twitter these days and not other social medias. Uh, but also follow GAPA PAIN, which is at G A P P A P A I N. And that is all the work that we're doing in terms of this bringing together people with lived experience of pain, clinicians and researchers to better understand pain and what to do about it and really building this community of people who want to do that. We just launched our membership and our first conference this month. Um, So check out what's going on there. That's where anything new and exciting that I'm involved with will be at.
0: All righty. Well, thanks a ton for coming on.
1: Thank you so much, Todd. It was so good to see you.
0: You too. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Better Movement podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like and subscribe. And if you want to support the podcast, go to toddhargrove.substack.com and become a subscriber.